Charles, by the grace of God, King of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, etc., to all our loving subjects, of what degree or quality soever, greeting. If the general distraction and confusion, which is spread over the whole kingdom, doth not awaken all men to a desire and longing that those wounds which have so many years together been kept bleeding may be bound up, all we can say will be to no purpose. However, after this long silence, we have thought it our duty to declare how much we desire to contribute thereunto, and that, as we can never give over the hope in good time to obtain the possession of that right which God and nature hath made our due, so we do make it our daily suit to the divine providence that he will, in compassion to us and our subjects, after so long misery and subjects, remit and put us into a quiet and peaceable possession of that our right, with as little blood and damage to our people as is possible. Nor do we desire more to enjoy what is ours than that all our subjects may enjoy what by law is theirs, by a full and entire administration of justice throughout the land, and by extending our mercy where it is wanted and deserved. The Declaration of King Charles II on his accession at Breda. Welcome back to From the Bastille to Berlin, a podcast about the Western world in an age of ideologies. Episode 4, Britain Incorporated. We're still in the background to the events of 1789, and this is a bit of a mini-series on how the ideas of liberal constitutional government and all that fun stuff developed in the English-speaking world. Or at least it's my idea of fun. Anyway, Last time, I talked about the English Civil War and the radical defense of authoritarianism that Thomas Hobbes promoted in Leviathan, and also the idea of a social contract. Today, I'm going to discuss the rise of the First British Empire and the development of the British Constitution, and, of course, we're going to get to John Locke. So when last we left dear old Blighty, things were looking grim. Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector, and it seemed like Puritanism was in the cards for the foreseeable future. I say in the cards, but really, old Cromwell and his friends probably didn't approve of cards to begin with. But that was about to be irrelevant, because Cromwell died in 1658. For the next two years, things were a bit of a shambles. Cromwell's son Richard was initially made Lord Protector, but he wasn't all that inspiring, and the army certainly wasn't going to follow him. Plots followed on plots, and it almost looked like the Civil War Round 4 was about to start when one of Cromwell's generals, George Monk, had a thought. Maybe now would be a good time to bring the monarchy back. So Monk marched on London and summoned all of the old members of the Long Parliament who had been purged and basically told them to get down to business, invite Charles II to take back his throne, and then, obligingly, dissolve themselves. And so Charles returned to England to cheering crowds and summoned his own parliament. Why were they cheering, I hear you ask? Because the new king was slightly more flexible and less principled than the old one. He was also less of a buzzkill than Cromwell, and had no problems with other people having fun, which Cromwell was always on about with things like closing theaters and canceling Christmas. Podcast footnote. I realize that Oliver Cromwell is coming off a bit harsh, which is sort of a given when doing this broad of a survey, so I'll just mention that he did do a couple of nice things. 
even though he might seem a bit of a dour killjoy to us and his contemporaries, he did introduce official religious toleration for all Protestants, though not Catholics, and even invited the Jews to return to England over 300 years after they were expelled. It's not to say he wasn't a nasty piece of work in many ways, especially if you were Irish, but he wasn't all bad. End podcast footnote. But while this so-called Cavalier Parliament was much friendlier to the king than the old Long Parliament had been, there were still tensions. The biggest of these was, guess what, religion. Charles had, after all, spent a lot of his time in a Catholic country. His wife and his brother were Catholic, and he seemed to be cozying up to that most Catholic of kings, our good friend Louis XIV of France. Thus, the political history of this period is full of plots, rumors of plots, conspiracies, counterplots, and a series of wars against the Dutch, which saw the English, for the only time in its proud history, given a thorough kicking up the backside. This included the inconvenient moment when a Dutch fleet casually sailed up the Thames and burned the English fleet to the waterline in the very harbor of London. Well, that was embarrassing. I can't let this moment pass, by the way, without giving a plug for an excellent, excellent Dutch film about the life of Michiel de Ruyter, which is called Admiral in the English edition. It features naval warfare, politics, intrigue, and a scene-stealing performance by Charles Dance as Charles II. It's one of the few really good films about the 17th century that I've seen, though fair warning there is plenty of violence and a bit of nudity. But anyway, back to the narrative. However, the English were, oddly, having better success on land, specifically the land of North America, where Charles' brother James, the Duke of York, sailed into the capital of Dutch North America on an island at the mouth of the Hudson River, and he captured it, and renamed it after himself. And so, with apologies to all fans of They Might Be Giants, now you know why Old New York was once New Amsterdam, and why they changed it. Speaking of the Duke of York, he was next in line for the throne, and wouldn't you know it, he was Catholic. This worried Parliament, especially because, while King Charles had plenty of children, all of them were bastards. No, I don't mean that they were jerks. I mean that they were literal bastards. Charles II is known as the Merry Monarch because he had many mistresses and lots of children, but couldn't seem to impregnate his wife. And so when he died in February of 1685, the grand old Duke of York became James II. But the new king said, don't panic. After all, I already have two heirs, Mary and Anne, both of whom are happily Protestant. And he further promised to be very good and not to try and make England Catholic again. All he wanted was toleration for his co-religionists. Really, cross my heart and hope to die. And then he had a son. And surprise, surprise, he had the new prince baptized as a Catholic. Now was the time to panic. So Parliament had to think and decided to stage a coup. They sent a letter to James's daughter Mary and her husband William, who happened to be the Prince of Orange, and the leader of that same Dutch Republic that had, just a few years ago, burned the English fleet in the Thames. Not that we're going to bring up that embarrassing moment again. Essentially what Parliament said was, We don't like your father-in-law very much. Would you be so kind as to invade? William, who was actually in line for the English throne in his own right, leaped at the chance, laid his plans carefully, and landed on English soil. Initially, James raised an army to meet him, but then it began to defect, and then James bravely ran away. William waved to him as he left, and then set about ruling. The first thing to be done was to decide what the legal situation exactly was. So, a new parliament was called, and it decided that when James fled the country that it counted as an abdication. And, after a little bit of legal wrangling, they decided that William and Mary would be joint rulers, and that Mary's sister Anne, and any children she might have, would be next in line. But, 
just to make sure everything was in order and crystal clear, the new rulers in their new parliament set about drafting a Bill of Rights to make it clear why James had been expelled. The 1689 Bill of Rights lays out a number of abuses that previous Stuart monarchs had been guilty of. These were things like, say, imprisoning people just for disagreeing with the king, arbitrarily deciding which laws were going to be enforced and which weren't, seizing people's weapons, imposing cruel and unusual punishments, suspending due process. Sounding familiar yet? Watch this space. Also, James was accused, unsurprisingly, of trying to make England Catholic again. But another work also came out in 1689 that also claimed to be a justification for the glorious and, well, nearly, bloodless revolution that had just happened. This was the Treatise on Civil Government by John Locke. Like Hobbes's Leviathan, this work describes a state of nature and a social contract. But Locke sees both radically differently than does Hobbes. In the state of nature, for Locke, people have natural rights, which are life, liberty, and property. But the problem is that these rights are difficult to enforce on your own. After all, what happens to my right to property when there's a dispute? Who decides? So the solution is a social contract, where people agree to abide by the decisions of a sovereign who derives his power from the people. However, if this sovereign abuses this power to violate these rights, the people have the right to overthrow the sovereign and find a new one. This is, obviously, a major departure from Hobbes, who argued that the social contract meant a forfeiture of rights to the sovereign. But for Locke, the state of nature means that rights are natural and cannot be forfeited, only delegated, and the people have the right to revoke that delegation if they wish. Let's make this a little clearer. If you remember, Hobbes had claimed that political legitimacy doesn't come from above, but from the people as a whole. But once that choice is made, the choice is irrevocable until order breaks down and there is a return to the state of nature. For Locke, that first part is perfectly fine, but all that stuff about political legitimacy being irrevocable is just absurd. If the people have the right to make a contract, then naturally they have the privilege of revoking it if the sovereign starts altering the agreement and saying, pray I don't alter it any further. Such a revolution is perfectly legal and within the rights of the governed. The major premise that lurks underneath the surface of this idea is that fundamental rights of the citizens aren't just handed out from the government. Instead, these rights are innate and precede the social contract. Any state which violates these rights has forfeited its legitimacy. Here, Locke is explicitly grounding his idea of universal human rights in an appeal to the divine origin of humanity. The reason why these rights are not arbitrary creations of a government is that they are given by God as part of the innate dignity of humans. Of course, there's a bit of ironic hypocrisy here, as Locke goes on to justify slavery, seizure of native lands, and the continued persecution of Catholics. Nonetheless, his thought forms the basis for the eventual criticisms of those practices. But the really important thing that I want to point out here is that the critique of Hobbes is grounded in this metaphysical assumption of the divine origin of humanity. Remove that, and Leviathan rears its ugly head once again. Watch this space. So back to William and Mary. Along with the Bill of Rights, they also brought something else back with them from the Netherlands, a new way of doing finance. You see, in the old days, banks did two things. They loaned you money, and they kept valuable things, like money for instance, safe for you. 
In return, they would give you a piece of paper that promised to give the money back to you the next time you came in. Meanwhile, the bankers would invest the money and make a tidy profit on the interest. Also, they would honor their notes no matter who brought them in. So, very quickly, people started trading notes instead of coins, since those are easier to transport. But there's a problem with this. If all that money is lent out and everyone cashes in their notes at once, the bank isn't going to be able to cover it because it doesn't have the reserves right there. So the bank collapses. And this happened multiple places in Europe during the 17th century, but particularly in the trade-reliant Dutch Republic. And people weren't just exchanging money, they were also investing in stocks, futures, in all sorts of harebrained schemes. For example, there's the Dutch tulip mania. As you know, the Netherlands are famous for their tulips, and the early 17th century was a time when tulips were considered a rare luxury item, and so enterprising Dutch farmers began planting lots of them. They cultivated new strains, perfected their techniques, and they had the wherewithal to do so because they got their projects for importation and development of rare bulbs funded through the new futures market. Investors soon caught on to the rising prices, and fairly soon there was a massive market bubble. Single tulip bulbs were being sold for more than a craftsman might make in 10 years, and of course the bubble then burst. Fortunes were ruined. Yeah, we know the drill. And this wasn't the only time something like this happened. So, the Dutch decided to set up a central bank to regulate all of this. You know, try and impose some semblance of order on finances. So when William of Orange came to England, he brought this idea with him. And in 1694, a charter was granted to a new institution the Bank of England. What this did was manage the government's debts and allow the king and parliament to live up to their ears in debt. Fight the French now, pay for the war later. And the thing was, it worked. England's new way of doing business meant that suddenly they had a lot more cash available to pay their army, backed by the increasing wealth of their colonies. Then, after William died and Anne came to the throne, the enterprise became a partnership. In 1707, the Scottish Parliament voted itself out of existence and created the Kingdom of Great Britain. Essentially, Scotland had landed itself in its own financial crisis after a harebrained attempt to build a canal in Panama. Yeah, great idea there. Maybe a couple of centuries too early. Anyway, and so the Scottish Parliament agreed to give up its independence for a stake in the new Britannia Incorporated. And in return, the Westminster government would take on the debt. For the Scots, it would turn into one of the most lucrative mergers in history. The 18th century saw Scotland go from an economic and cultural backwater to a mecca for investors, merchants, and intellectuals alike. More on that next episode. But that old question of succession was still percolating in the background. Queen Anne wasn't getting any younger, and while she had been pregnant 17 times, seriously, 17, none of her children lived past childhood, and it looked very likely that she wouldn't have any more. Parliament couldn't very well have James's Catholic son on the throne, so they, very conveniently, made adherence to Protestantism a condition for the succession. So when Anne died, the throne went to her closest Protestant relative, George, Elector of Hanover. Now, if you remember last episode, in James I's ill-fated son-in-law, you know, the Winter King of Bohemia, this is that man's grandson. So for the next 200 years, a bunch of Germans are going to sit on the British throne, providing fodder for British comedians from Jonathan Swift to Rowan Atkinson. To be fair, though, when you're limiting the succession to Protestants and people married to Protestants, what it means is that the only royals available are going to be either German or Scandinavian. 
Anyway, all of the British monarchs from 1714 to 1901 would be from the Hanover family. These new kings were perfect. Why, you ask? Well, they didn't speak English. No, really, that's a good thing, because it meant that they had to rely on parliamentary leaders to help them run the country. By the 1720s, one man, a man named Robert Walpole, had consolidated a power base and essentially created a new job, Prime Minister. From this point onward, monarchs would appoint an official leader of parliament who would oversee the day-to-day -day running of the kingdom, letting the monarch officially remain non-partisan. And this guy Walpole was a man who made his career by leading the investigation of the South Sea Bubble. What is the South Sea Bubble, I hear you ask? Well, it was an economic fiasco, almost as hilarious as the Dutch tulip mania. You see, as Parliament had gained more power, factions had developed within its members, and these coalesced into what we think of as political parties. When the Bank of England was formed, the more liberal Whig faction had controlled the Parliament, meaning that a bunch of Whigs occupied key posts in it. So when the Tories, conservative pro-Stuart members, took power a few years later, they decided they didn't like the Bank of England and created a rival institution to buy up government debt, the South Sea Company. Now, in theory, the South Sea Company was supposed to have trading concessions in the Spanish possessions in the Americas, but its director, a man named John Blunt, was a right rogue who ran a bunch of shady stock deals that turned the whole thing into a giant, government-backed pyramid scheme whose only source of income was sales of its own stock. The economic bubble that resulted nearly engulfed the entire English economy, and when it burst, it had the potential to bring down both Parliament and the monarchy. Enter our savior, Robert Walpole. He was a Whig who had been critical of the South Sea Company from the start, and he seized the opportunity to take power and lead the investigation and find the right scapegoats. Oh, and cook the books enough to clear the royal family and himself of complicity. He also made sure that the few people who knew what had really happened couldn't testify. The result was that Walpole now had enough political capital to run the country. And the thing was, he was really good at it. He brought fiscal responsibility and sound foreign policy that were badly needed. And so England had a prosperous peace for the next 20 years. Of course, you can't make a political omelet without breaking a few eggs. And by breaking eggs, I mean bribery, backscratching, and good old-fashioned corruption. But the thing was, Walpole's management of Britannia Incorporated really worked. The country enjoyed two decades of peace, business boomed, and the American colonies benefited from Walpole's hands-off approach to enforcing laws about things like, oh, say, smuggling and taxation. It seemed like smooth sailing. Well, not for everyone. You see, this didn't sit well with people in the Scottish Highlands and, of course, Ireland. These areas were largely Catholic, and so the Protestant settlements had kind of left them out in the cold. These areas relied on a subsistence economy that was no longer sustainable in this brave new world of trade. So while the new Britannia Incorporated might be good for the merchants and the knobs in Glasgow or London, it left these people behind. So you'll be hardly surprised that these areas had a little bit of nostalgia for the good old days of the Stuarts, before the Act of Union, when men were men, women were women, and little furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were little furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. And a few of those Stuarts were still alive and kicking on the continent. And so, anytime Britain and France went to war, the French would let a Stuart pretender off the leash, he would pop over to Scotland, raise an army, and do his best to retake his throne, and cause as much mayhem as one can with an army of angry, feuding Highlanders. So the government did the only sensible thing. 
It paid off a couple of Highland clans to be allies of the Hanovers and to keep an eye on their fellow Scots. The most infamous of these were the Campbells, who earned a dark reputation when they violated the laws of hospitality to slaughter their rivals the Macdonalds in an incident known as the Glencoe Massacre. Nonetheless, the government gave them patronage and built a series of forts and military roads to start to bring the Highland clans kicking and screaming into the 18th century. But then war broke out with France again, during the reign of George II. This war, known variously as the War of Austrian Succession, or more humorously as the War of Jenkins' Ear, saw England and France once again squaring off, and this time the king and his sons personally took the field on the continent and were causing serious trouble for the French forces. So the French government sent for Charles Edward Stuart, the grandson of James II, gave him money and transport to Scotland, and he proceeded to raise the standard of revolt in the Highlands. At first it didn't look like he would succeed, but then he started winning. He defeated the garrisons of the Highlands and proceeded to take Edinburgh, the ancient capital of Scotland, and then he crossed the border into England. Now it was time to panic. The Hanovers had been caught with their pants down, and had to withdraw significant forces from the continent to deal with this angry rabble of smelly Highlanders. In particular, the King's son, the Duke of Cumberland, brought an army back to England, and soon Prince Charles's army was retreating back to the Highlands. Finally, the two forces met, and the Stuart forces were brutally crushed at the Battle of Culloden, where Cumberland earned the nickname that would follow him for the rest of his life, Butcher. His army crushed, Prince Charlie then had to flee, most famously dressed as a maid on one occasion, and would never return to Scotland. The Stuart cause was finally dead, and when Cumberland returned to London in triumph, he was acclaimed with a special church service where he was compared to the Jewish patriot Judas Maccabeus, in a new piece of music by a composer who his family had brought over with them from Hanover, a man you know as George Friedrich Handel. Sing, oh. 